Hey folks, a couple of quick announcements. First, Jim and I have a whole series of talks about the rides that Disney never built over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Most of those shows are almost an hour long, and they cover everything from Animal Kingdom's Beastly Kingdom to floating theme parks on an aircraft carrier to what the heck Disney was doing in the home remodeling sector in the 1960s to some really groovy ideas for some Australian-themed rides. Check them out at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. They're shows that you won't hear here. Second, Jim and I are doing a live event in Walt Disney World in 2017. Dates are November 10th through the 13th, and we'll be putting more information at our travel partners website, storybookdestinations.com slash DisneyDish. We plan to spend those couple of days walking through the parks and telling lots and lots of stories, and that's pretty much how we're going to spend our nights too, but at a bar. <laughs> Visit storybookdestinations.com slash DisneyDish to join us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. Let's welcome in one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Uh, it is going well, Len. For those folks who have been wondering when we were going to get around, you know, get back to our chronological Disneyland series, today, this is it. But before we do that, Jim, yes. I have to tell you about the adventure that I had with Disney Media Relations. Oh! This week. <laughs> so, as you know, as, as our listeners know, or they may not know, but let me, let me tell the story. I, the unofficial guide, me, and touringplans.com. We are the largest independent guidebook to Walt Disney World. We sold 6 million copies of the book. Touringplans.com sends every year literally hundreds of thousands of families, probably half a million people, mm -hmm. to Walt Disney World. Those are our users who get paid. In terms of number of annual visitors, the website has around 20 million. It is by far one of the largest Disney specialist websites in existence. We don't get invited to media events. Jim. And the reason why we don't get media to, invited to media events is because we're frequently critical about what Disney has to offer. Let me give you an example, though, this week of why we don't get invited to media events. So Disney's got some information up on its website now about the food and drink available at Pandora. Mm -hmm. And one of them mentions the Pongu Pongu Lounge. And on Disney's website, it says... Meeting party party in the language of the Navi, Pongo Pongo welcomes weary travelers to try our bioluminescent frozen cocktail, indigenous beers, or even a sweet snack you won't find elsewhere. This is on Disney's website. So bioluminescent, Jim, mm -hmm. means two things. A, it's alive. That's what the bio part means. Mm -hmm. And B, it glows. So what Disney is saying in its description of the frozen cocktails is that there's something alive and glowing in the drink. So I wrote to Disney and media relations and I said, I know you guys have bioluminescent plants and you know, they're going to be part of Pandora. The patents are online. Disney's research has talked about it. Are you really going to serve drinks with live glowing things in them? Because if so, I, I want to talk to someone about how you're doing that. That's, that's incredible, right? I'll, I'll cover that. I'll give you the free publicity on it. But I, I looked on the FDA website because it's a, it's a food additive, you know, something glowing in a drink, an animal glowing in a drink. Some, the FDA would be interested in that. And I looked on the FDA's website and Disney had not filed any sort of paperwork to serve anything bioluminescent. So I said, you know, look, if this is just a case of a copywriter not knowing what bioluminescent actually means, I'm fine with that, right? But if you do actually have something that glows and is alive and you're going to serve it to the public... 
let me know because I'm I'm all over that. And and that's important for a lot of people, right? People who keep kosher may not be able to drink something that's bioluminescent. They would really want to know that. Vegetarians, right? Certain vegetarians, vegans, for example. I, I honestly think I think you're coming at this from an from an honest position. Look, the level of terror right now. At Disney, when it comes to I know, I know. When I sent it, I apologized. I was like, "Look, I know this is not what you wanted." I mean, I'm sensitive to the press release people. I understand why I'm not invited to media events. I'm not sad or complaining about it. It's their party; they can do what they want. I understand why I'm not invited. But when I wrote to them, I'm like. The the website says this, and now I have to ask, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, it's, a le- the, it's a legitimate question, but from their side of the fence, it's like, now somebody has to reach out. And they did. <laughs> they did. They had to go back to food and beverage and say, what are the ingredients in the drink? Long story short, it's glow cubes. It's not bioluminous. But that didn't stop the Orlando Sentinel from repeating the story today mm-hmm. verbatim without questioning the bioluminescent thing kills me today was one of those demonstrations of the might of the disney company i, I don't know if you know what happened today on at abc len oh uh, was it that good morning america did a preview of the land not only that the 11 o'clock position with the view where james cameron himself walks Whoopi goldberg through the land and takes her on the navi river adventure oh, by the way i would totally go on a ride that featured both Whoopi goldberg and james cameron as host <laughs> so speaking though of food <laughs> the one o'clock position yeah. on the chew they actually had the four hosts sit down and they were sampling the food that's going to be served. i saw i saw mm-hmm. and look they kept talking savory cream cheese robust and it's just sort of like i think you're eating a plate (laughs) but here's the thing len disney is freaked out because for months now they have Mm. been reassuring themselves that people are genuinely interested in pandora because if you go to google and you see i i I would doubt that jim i well first of all let me just say i think disney's been soft peddling the marketing for this Mm mm-hmm for a while. And I think it's because the ride visuals may not have been completely done on the inside that if you notice the preview videos that they're giving are literally like half second snippets. Oh, no doubt. Of the ride. But anyway, yes. What is Disney uh, What is Disney freaking out about? Disney has been reassuring themselves that it's like, look, people are genuinely interested in Pandora because if you, if you go to Google and you, you, mm-hmm. you type in Disney and Pandora, you see the hundreds of thousands of searches. And it was, I guess, just only recently that a Disney executive said, well, you understand we do do Disney-themed jewelry through Pandora, right? And we do have no. Disney music on the Pandora surface. Disney plus Pandora minus bracelet, guys. This is basic Googling. Come on. <laughs> Put the minus sign in front of the terms you want to exclude. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the story in the Sentinel where they were asking people who worked in the theme park industry and the president oh, of SeaWorld basically yeah. said that I don't think that Pandora, the world of Avatar, is going to have the impact at Disney that Harry Potter had. Oh, it wasn't it wasn't SeaWorld. I thought it was the guy from Universal that said no, it. I, 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 was it SeaWorld? I think it was SeaWorld. Oh, yeah, I believe and it. Just, and it's the whole notion, now think about this. This is SeaWorld. SeaWorld is really having... <laughs> SeaWorld! <laughs> you know, if SeaWorld's going, I don't think that's going to be SeaWorld was in the gutter and looking up at the... Yeah, I, you know, I don't think this is the best idea. If SeaWorld tells you something's not a good idea. (laughs) This is a quote from Cameron today talking with Whoopi Goldberg. She asked, well, when is this set? 
And so Cameron immediately starts to talk about the four sequels that are now in production to Avatar. Yeah. But this will be mm-hmm. set after that. It's 20 years after the sequels. Yeah. So the jungle has started to take back the, uh, yeah. This is at the point where the Navi are in a good place, that they're willing to welcome outsiders in and show off their cultures. Let me just say the Iraqis would probably not be welcoming <laughs> us if we wanted to do <laughs> tours of, uh, of Baghdad right now. But the Navi are more advanced people. This is the podcast that absolutely guarantees that neither of us get invited to the press event for Pandora. The upside is, Jim, we will have written it before the media event actually happens, so that's well, fine. We <laughs> Let's talk about the story of the land, because we've only touched on it briefly. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be 20 years in the future. I have some questions about the backstory of the land, and I think then they provide some, some new backstory. They have started walking chunks of this out, mostly because it's trying to get people to frame this properly as they come over the bridge from Tiffin's or come in the back way past Festival of the Lion King. It's like, what am I looking at here? In the movie, one of the reasons why there is literally an avatar in Pandora, why the people can't walk by themselves is because the atmosphere is toxic, Mm -hmm. right? Humans can't breathe the Pandora. What's the explanation for getting around that in the new land? You know how you can ride Space Mountain and zoom through the the vacuum of space without having your eyeballs sucked out of your head? Same thing? Pretty much. Same technology? Pretty much. Okay, all right. (laughs) The technology of imagination. All right. Let's go with that. Um, And the story behind the boat ride, the Navi River Passage? This is, uh, for lack of a better term, Pirates of Pandora. It's a very mild, pleasant journey through this bioluminescent forest and a mix of uh, practical effects, props, okay, okay. You know, that sort of thing. I, I saw screens. It looks like there's a lot of screens. It, it, well, the, but, but again, there's screens set back through right. a heavily propped area. I mean, for example, the Viper Wolves, the, the footage that we keep seeing of the two seeing the boat on the river and coming that, down. That's screens. That's screens. But in front of them is all of this glow-in-the-dark plant work and practical Mm -hmm. effect things that go over their heads. And it all, of course, builds to the moment where you meet the Navi shaman. You keep seeing the close-up of one side of her face in the commercials. And and having talked with with the Imaginaries who worked on that, they are kind of ticked off that they keep showing it in close-up. Because it's like, you're supposed to see this from the boat. You're supposed to see this from 10 or 15 yeah. feet away. It works beautifully there. I've also heard the ride's like four or five minutes long. Yeah, it's such a colorful, densely packed environment. You do see a lot of creatures moving through the underbrush. It has an amazing sound profile. And of course, you know, the, the lights. But this really is about putting you in the bioluminescent forest, which, by the way, again, the story Cameron was telling today, this is something that came to him in a dream when he was 17, and he literally rolled out of bed and painted it to remember it. And that's the thing. This is what's so bizarre about standing here in Pandora, the world of Avatar, and seeing this thing that I, I dreamed up at 17 made real, made whole, that we can sit in a boat and float through it. All right. It's a slow-moving boat ride. It's a small world of pirates in Pandora del Tiempo, right? That's what we're pretty going much, with for the... Pretty much. Flights of Passage is, is really soaring over Pandora. The ride vehicles look interesting there, though. It 
two-person ride vehicles on dragons? The two-person thing came kind of late in the game when they really began to realize how low the capacity on this was. It looks like you sit on one of those ride vehicles you see in front of grocery stores, obviously much more elaborate, but you sit on that, again, in a two-person configuration, and the vehicle itself is your banshee? Yes. And there's a, there's a curved projection screen in front of you. If they've kept the prototype... The sides would expand and collapse as if you were on a living, breathing creature that had musculature. Haven't they done a similar sort of ride vehicle for the Tron coaster in Shanghai? In that case, it's trying to recreate the light cycle. You're sitting in kind of a motorcycle configuration, and, and then as you're actually riding the vehicle, they force you forward. The safety harness actually comes down over your back or thereabouts, so you're riding in that sort of position that you saw from the films and then have your get a whip around the enclosed track in, in their Tomorrowland section. I've heard the ride capacity of the Flights of Passage ride should be fairly large, somewhere between 2,000 and upper 2,000s per hour. That, that kind of makes sense from what they're trying to do in terms of getting people through the park. The boat ride itself will be four or five minutes long, a Pirates of the Caribbean style. They should be able to cycle people through that too, right? Yeah, I mean, both were designed to be a combination of about 4,000 people an hour having these experiences and then be able to push them back into the park. But again, we haven't done the crucial cast member tests yet. In fact, we should start to see those happen in the next week to 10 days. It's one thing to say this is how it goes. It's another thing to actually push bodies through and realize that, uh, you know, it, it's yeah. kind of like I was just doing research on Splash Mountain and, mm-hmm. you know, they built it assuming, you know, the first one in Disneyland that they were going to be able to put eight people in a log and have 45 logs at any one time going through the building. But they learned the hard way that that's too much weight. And so they had to yeah, that's it back lot. to seven and eventually it wound up with a configuration six. of six, which really yeah. killed what their original uh, hourly throughput was. Yeah, it's a, 20, it's a 25% re- reduction in, uh, in throughput. And then on a water ride, there's only so fast that you can make water go that, before it becomes exactly. un- unpredictable. Yeah. If you don't want the vehicle to fill with water at the bottom of Chickapen Hill. Oh, there's that. So. There's always that. Good. Any other news? We had the annual meeting in Denver where Iger getting pushback about being on President Trump's council. Basically, Iger made the case was like, I think it's important to have for us to be a voice in the room. Yeah, he qu- basically quoted Hamilton saying well, that. Yes. <laughs> the musical. <laughs> All right. You know, and here I was doing the research for the, our Chronological Disneyland show today and looking back at January of 1990 where Michael Eisner walks out the Disney decade, this elaborate 10-year-long oh, yeah. thing they're going to build and Anaheim and Orlando and you know what's going on in Paris and if you know your your Disney history and how little of the Disney decade actually made it off the table here's Michael Eisner doing his best Donald Trump impression talking about everything I talk about today is definitely being built (laughs) (laughs) by definitely I mean probably or we would like to have it happen when he was talking about what they're going to be doing in, in Southern California, he, he mentioned it's a massive undertaking. The company was going to spend more than a billion dollars to build a new amusement park either in Anaheim or Long Beach. Eisner, right from the get-go, was pitting Anaheim and against Long Beach. Now, looking back, it seems that Long Beach may have been the faint 
Yeah, Isa was looking for so much from Anaheim in regard to what right. they're going to change around the park and money for street improvements and turning to the state and the feds for dedicated expansion of the highway and ramps feeding into parking sure. garages. It helps to have two suitors, right? It helps for, oh, no, no, for no, people no. to believe that they're not the Absolutely. only ones that are on okay. That was 61, 62 when, when the area was still somewhat undeveloped. When you jump ahead to 1990, Disneyland's been around for 35 years and it's just like... The area just beyond the berm is this congested, overbuilt urban environment. I mean, the Imagineers were now having to contend things like the uh, the 14-story tall inn at the park that was built at the corner of Harbor and Catella and would mm-hmm. loom over anything that was going to be built in the parking lot. Michael Eisner at this point had spent six years dealing with Epcot. Yeah. Again, remember, this is January of 1990, so Disney is just beginning outreach to Future World's original sponsors, corporations like Kraft Food, General Motors, Coca-Cola, and Exxon, and reminding them that it's like, you did read your contract, right? You, you understand that at the 10-year mark, you agreed that you were going to pay to upgrade and improve your p- pavilion because Future World needs to be at the cutting edge. What Disney was learning was that, well, geez, how much of that money do we have to spend on the outside of the building? And it just concrete. Which, which no, one, no one rides the outside of the building. Yeah, and Eisner, as they're working on Westcott, is looking at these projections come across his desk and, and sitting in meetings about this. And it's just sort of like, mm-hmm. I want to avoid this issue with Westcott. I want Future World to be current but I don't want to waste money on outside of buildings. And so he turns to the Imagineers and says, you know what we do here with sound stages? We have these giant buildings that you can build anything inside on. You can put lights on them and sound baffles and that sort of thing. And you can have things side by side. And that actually became the conceit for what way they were going to handle future world at Westcott. Instead of building a circular building for World of Motion, he just envisioned these giant box-shaped buildings that were modeled after sound stages. Yep. If you did it right, you could literally put a, a space mountain next to a Star Tours. And not have to worry about the exterior. You could repaint the exterior. But Jim, it sounds to me like this meeting started with the phrase, you guys have been to Ikea, right? <laughs> That's probably quite likely. <laughs> I, get, I get where he's coming from. You, you get a big enough, you know, a cavernous enough space, mm-hmm. you can put anything in it. You can also, as they do at the studios, use the outside of those buildings for promotion, paint them different colors, put up different posters. You could do some light theming on the outside if you wanted to. And, and it, to his point, nobody rides the outside of buildings. I get that. You have 100 square acres of land at Disney's parking lot. Mm-hmm. And you have all of this visual intrusion. And you know you still have to do your internationally themed world showcase section. And how do you do that? Problem number one is like, let's find something interesting to do with our, our future world section. And what they decided to do is these giant soundstage shaped buildings would not be built above ground. Plan was- Tunnels. Well, th- that's, the, that's the ingenious part. They were going to dig 40 square acres of land out of Disneyland's parking lot and put these three future world themed structures. It's important to understand the gimmick of Westcott was, it's go- was going to be the seven wonders of Westcott. And so for the future world section of it, they were going to have the Wonders of Nature Pavilion, the Wonders of Space Pavilion, and the Wonders of Living Pavilion. I've never heard of these things. Really. Yeah. And then for the World Showcase portion of it, 
The four worlds of Westcott were going to be the old world, Europe, the new world, the Americas, and then the world of Asia and the world of Africa. Screw you, Antarctica. <laughs> okay, all right. Good. Well, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because I mean, no one, no one, no one's there to vote on it, so that's fine. Know, that's fine. In fact, right. Eisner made them pull out all of the stuff that had previously been proposed for Epcot and not been built. And one of the things he really fell in love with was the original plan for the land pavilion, where you had these these biomes where you could actually travel from the desert to the rainforest to the Arctic. And that's, yeah. that was actually the plan for nature. You remember the biodome guy who actually was working with Disney on this project when they backed away from the biomes, and he went off and built the biodome, you know, based on the research. In the, in the desert in Arizona. That's exactly. Yeah, and, and I think only a few people went crazy living in there for a year, right? <laughs> I mean, it was generally considered a success. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, maybe it was just Arizona. I've, I've met some people out there. Picture a clock face. At the center of this clock face, we have space station Earth. You know, you understand how spaceship Earth is 180 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Space station Earth was supposed to be 300 feet tall, painted gold. Is it, still a, is it still a sphere? It's still a sphere. So it's like four times bigger than, wait, no, it's eight times bigger? Because doesn't the area of a sphere grow cubically with the... I'll have to look this up. My jump geometry is coming. Okay, but it's like eight times bigger than Spaceship Earth. Yeah, and, okay, I mean, and it looms over the park. Inside of this was going to be an attraction called Cosmic Journeys. There's a film effect called The Powers of Ten. You started in sort of a, a normal setting and then went down, you know, each time, you know, magnification, magnification I, to you got Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so ten X, a hundred X, a thousand X. So you got to the subatomic level and yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you reversed it and went out as far as that Earth is this tiny little speck in the galaxy in the Milky Way. And this was going to be sort of the thesis attraction that rather than a spaceship ride to it was going to be a, a film on this giant dome inside that sort of sold you on the notion of how interconnected we all are. Crucial thing to understand here is, again, Eisner, who really had a problem with how sterile Epcot Center was, mm -hmm. this version space station Earth was going to be on an island in a lagoon in the middle of the park, and you had to come through Entrance Plaza Retail Corridor in much, in much the same position as what we have today at Disney's California Adventure. Or, you know, for that matter, I mean, Magic Kingdom Main Street is a retail quarter. The difference is you had to, to cross a bridge where you actually came around a waterfall. And so here is Space Station Earth on this lush green island. Okay. Remember that we've got our, our future world pavilions underground. You had to actually go down into the lower levels of what was called the Venture Port. And then it was a question of, okay, are you headed toward... The old world. Are you going to Europe? Well, if you're going to Europe, here is the Orient Express. Really? Remember how we talked about for the, the Japanese pavilion at Epcot, they were going to have a bullet train experience where you'd look out the windows and whiz by all of these, these things? Yep. This is what they were going to do with the Oriental Express. And in fact, in an odd way, Disney never went forward with this idea, but the folks at Universal did, and that's why we have the Hogwarts Express today. Uh, it was going to be that. Yeah, but you'd get off the train and now you're in a European train station and you'd go upstairs and now here you are in this, this amazing environment. Here's Italy off to one side, here's Germany, but they're right on top of one another and 
one of the keys to the, the problem of this park is visual mm-hmm. intrusion. Remember, right across the street is Disneyland Park, and we had Main Street. Mm-hmm. As the legend goes, all the buildings on Main Street were built at seven, eight size to, to sell you that intimate experience. Here, they're going to bury the needle in the other direction. Every building was going to be at least six stories tall, so they loomed over you. But the killer part of this was it was only the first three floors of each of these buildings in the four World Showcase-themed worlds of Westcott. That was Mm -hmm. where the ride shows and attractions were going to be. The next three floors, those were going to be hotel space. Ah, you're killing me here, Jim. You're killing me. All right, so we have our space station Earth at center of the clock face. In 12 noon position, we have Westcott's main entrance off of Disneyland Plaza. At the 1 o'clock position, we have the top half of Westcott's New World section, which, again, as I mentioned, celebrates the Americas. So you come in, you go to the left, and that's the New World area. Okay. Now, continuing on to the 2 o'clock position, this was where Mm -hmm. the Disneyland Amphitheater was going to be built. We've talked about this before, an amphitheater where they could do concert events at night, but cordon off the park so you could charge separate admission for it. And at least in this iteration of the plan, it was literally outside of the Westcott equivalent of the berm. It was a 5,000-seat venue. It was going to be used to present concerts and live entertainment events, though there was some sort of contingency to sort of create a tunnel space where if you had a group in the park that was performing or that sort of thing that needed to get over it, you could create it sort of a temporary wall to funnel people directly out of Westcott into the the Disney amphitheater and then directly back out. Yeah. Either way, every every iteration of this idea that I've heard had some sort of mechanism for either getting outside people or or inside people out. But at least in, in this plan, I mean, it was pretty much an outside venue, in fact, to the point where it was supported by what was known as the Harbor Gateway, which was this vehicle drop-off area that was on the south side of Harbor Boulevard. At the three o'clock position, we have the bottom half of uh, the New World section, again, celebrating Americas. Four o'clock position is our first subterranean satellite pavilion, the Wonders of Nature. At our five o'clock position, we now start to enter Westcott's Old World section, And the old world basically ran from 5 o'clock to about 6.30. Starting at the 7 o'clock position, we have Westcott's Worlds of Asia. That would then extend to 9 o'clock. Starting at the 9 o'clock position on the clock face, we we enter Westcott's World of Africa, which extends to 11 o'clock. And that brings us back to our entrance retail corridor. Now, we previously talked about Westcott's Wonders of Space and Wonders of Living Pavilion. The way these were handled was, you know how the Haunted Mansion show building and the Pirates of the Caribbean show building are basically outside the park past the berm? Yeah. This was pretty much what what they were going to do with these two pavilions. The Wonders of Living Pavilion would have stretched from the 9 to 10 o'clock position. The Wonders of Space Pavilion basically sat behind where the 8 o'clock on the the clock face would be. Okay, so if you're entering, it's up into your yeah. right. Were they above ground or below ground when they're outside the berm? These are below ground. They're <laughs> out of sight behind both Asia and Africa. At the same time, they're back of house and accessible from that side. I get the picture that Disney eventually takes this tunneling a little too far and starts digging under people's <laughs> houses just to expand the park out. Like, eventually... Tom and Mildred go into their basement one day, and there's a boat ride in it. 
I see Disney buying up the mineral rights to lots of land around Disneyland. Well, at this point. Like you can buy airspace mm-hmm. above buildings and use it to offset the development of other buildings. You could buy the like mineral rights. Well, like you guys are going, well, you guys want the mineral rights to my land? Sure. <laughs> when you look at Wonders of Living, here's Body Wars, here's Cranium Command, here's Making of Me. And, and not only that, Eisner also signed off on, okay, let's do a somewhat different version of Journey into Imagination. Really? He wanted it updated somewhat. With the Wonders of Nature Pavilion that we talked about, here's the the biomes that that were proposed for the 1975-1976 version of the Land Pavilion. And then the Space Pavilion... It's not mission space. It's it's the earlier version of flying up to a space station and looking out the windows as hmm. it, it rotates. I mean, there was a lot of really ambitious stuff that they wanted to try to do with this park. And speaking of ambition, I mean, when you're building in the, the parking lot at Walt Disney World and you now need new places for people to park. And in fact, it's so funny that here we are in the era of the East Gateway Project, the giant parking structure that's now being built down by the five that'll service all those folks who were driving up to San Diego to go to Disneyland. This garage was proposed back in 1990. Almost 30 years ago. It wasn't some gas vehicle tram that was going to drive you from, you know, you're coming down out of the parking garage over. There was going to be two sets of people movers. It rained continuously from these parking structures over to Disneyland Plaza. And then from there, if you needed to journey from Disneyland Plaza to, say, one of the three brand new hotels they were going to build, or the new Pleasure Island-inspired nighttime entertainment district that was going to recreate famous buildings from California, like the Avalon Ballroom from Catalina, you'd hop on a monorail, which would took you all over the Disneyland Resort. Even that wasn't enough. I mean, that, that Eisner wanted what he had in Florida. He wanted this to be turned into a multi-day destination resort and to stop relying on guests from 100 miles you know, away and trying to lure them to come back to Disneyland you know, a couple times a year. Right. But that meant that Anaheim couldn't be ugly anymore. It couldn't be this hodgepodge of neon signs and asphalt and and concrete. He wanted the control over the environment in California that he had in Florida. So what he wanted to do, it was actually called the Anaheim Commercial Recreation Area. What Eisner wanted was uniformity in the size of signs. He wanted a greenery. But that's the irony that, that Westcott doesn't get built. But the Anaheim commercial recreation area does. On at least a couple of sides of, of Disneyland. It, it is a palm tree lined boulevard. Wide boulevard, I might add. Really well done. Very nice to, uh, to walk. So much of this was, we're going to invest $3 billion. Because that was the thing. The park, mm-hmm. they were going to spend over a billion dollars just creating Westcott. Between the, the three new hotels, the entertainment district, the two parking garages... The people mover system expanding the monorail is it's three billion dollars, and that's a billion dollars in in park estimates before they started digging. So really, one point five yeah, to I two. I mean, it's just right because everyone who's done a home remodel knows what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> okay. but, but here's the fascinating part: is that they then turn around to the state of California and to the feds and say we are effectively doubling the size of a resort, and there's going to be a financial ripple effect. We're going to need your help. We're going to need improvements on the five. We're going to need dedicated speed ramps leading to these parking garages. 
And the feds in the state were like, okay. But this still meant that Disney, starting in February of 91, had to start buying up chunks of land around the park. That's the tricky part, right? To facilitate the, the construction of all this stuff. And all this is proposed for Anaheim. At the same time, there's this, this amazing project being proposed for Long Beach. And the thing that Eisner is being less than subtle about is like, okay, we will do this if you give us the best possible deal in Anaheim. And if you don't, we have the folks in Long Beach who are just as eager to have a Disney yeah. theme park. In fact, more so. Yep. We can build one of these two projects, right? That's the situation we'll discuss in the next show because they both begin marching oh, forward and they both, at the same time, yeah. Disney brings the plan out for Westcott. Here is Port Disney and Disney Seas. And as amazing as... Well, well they've got to do it, right? Strictly from a negotiations strategy perspective, you've got to appear credible. Both options have to appear credible. They have to walk out Oh, no, together, no, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So we just covered 1990. We'll go like 1991, 1992. And the next yeah, one. we'll walk as far as December of 91 and what happens there. All right, well, uh, we'll do that in the next show. Thanks very much, Jim. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher. And also paint on your local homeless people a review of the show and tell us what you would like to hear next. We are produced, I might add, fabulously, by one Aaron Adams. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.